0: hey everybody welcome back to another episode of ask katie anything i am your host licensed marriage and family therapist katie morton i'm so glad that you're here if my voice sounds a little bit hoarse we had friends in town from houston and we just stayed up late laughing talking and i'm still a little getting it together don't worry it'll come back through this week i'm going to talk about the difference between depression and general disappointment with life then i'm also going to talk about the options that we have to reward ourselves that don't involve shopping or food. And I'll also discuss the reasons that we can feel sometimes like we're too broken for therapy. Then I'm going to offer some ways that people pleasers can do the necessary things like say no sometimes or set boundaries, right? Um, Without too much stress about hurting someone's feelings. And then I'm going to talk about the difference between rumination and healthy processing. And finally. I'll explain what fear of rejection is and how it differs from fear of abandonment. A lot of this or that this week. It's funny how we have kind of trends in our questions. So there'll be a lot of comparisons. I pulled out my DSM because there's a couple of them. I'm gonna want to reference that as a touch point for comparisons. But without further ado, let's jump into that first question. Question number one says, hey, Katie, my question's about distinguishing between depression or another mental disorder, and general disappointment or dissatisfaction with life? What would you say to someone who was not feeling happy about being alive, but, all, but also not necessarily depressed or mentally ill? What if you just feel like you don't like life and you don't particularly enjoy it? What if your dissatisfaction with life is just a combination of your personality, your resilience, and the fact that life can really suck, or at least feel like more effort than it's worth? I can see so many reasons for not liking life, even if you're not mentally ill. I know you dig deeper to see if there's another issue going on, but what if a person is stuck feeling like this for years on end, and it's actually not a sign of mental problems? For example, the author of a book on happiness recently wrote that he, quote unquote, didn't have an emotional problem like depression, but a discontentment problem, just not liking life. I too went from completely suicidal to just generally preferring not to live. This, among other things, has made me wonder, do you really think being excited about life is the baseline or default for most that most healthy people should feel? What makes us think the default wouldn't be a mild state of depression and despondency with life? Thank you for th- taking the time to answer our questions. I hope you're taking care of yourself. I am. It was really good to connect with friends. So this is a wonderful question. Let's get into it. Now, when we talk about depression, remember I brought out my DSM. When we talk about depression, we're not talking about one symptom, like anhedonia. For those of you who don't know, anhedonia is a symptom of depression that is like, we just don't enjoy what we used to enjoy. We're kind of blah, right? That is a piece of it, but that's not the whole story. Remember, depression means that we have five or more of the following as well as, okay, so five or more of these, plus we must have a depressed mood, okay, and a loss of interest or pleasure. And this must happen for most days for at least two weeks, right? So for most of the day lasting for at least two weeks. Now, the things that we must also feel, right, five plus those two I just mentioned, there are nine other potential symptoms, okay? Depressed mood for most of the day, nearly every day markedly diminished um, interest or pleasure in all or almost all activities. Those are those two. Then we have significant weight loss when not dieting or weight gain. So appetite disturbance, sleep disturbance, insomnia, hypersomnia, um, psychomotor agitation or retardation, which really just means that we feel like a lot of energy to either move or we feel like we can't move at all fatigue or loss of energy nearly every day, feelings of worthlessness or excessive or inappropriate guilt, diminished ability to think or concentrate, indecisiveness, diminished, um, recurrent thoughts of death, not just fear of dying. So, and these have to impair your ability to function. And the reason that I wanted to walk you through that is because a normal person, I'm using normal loosely, a non-mental illness affected person, looks out into life and sees both the positives and negatives and can have bad days and can have good days. But for most of their time, they feel pretty good. It doesn't mean they're like, like whistling and, and you know, skipping through life. No. But they're able to ride the waves of life and not get caught up in them, not to think negatively all the time, not to be unable to see any positives. What's happening here for you, I believe, is depression. Now, the author of this book, obviously, you know, on happiness said he didn't feel like he had depression, and I'm not here to judge whether or not they did. But talking about discontentment problem, like just not liking life, to me, reeks of depression. Because what depression does, or even suicidal thoughts, is that they, they like snuff out the color or the light in our lives. Instead of looking out into our world and being able to see the good and the bad, we only see the bad. It's what I would call a negative bias. And just to kind of get nerdy with you for a minute, a negative bias makes sense. Our brain is wired to seek out threat, meaning that our amygdala and our whole limbic system looks out into our environment for anything that could be threatening so it can ready us to take action. Do we need to fight, flight, freeze, or fawn? How can we best protect ourselves? It cues us up, gets everything going. Therefore, we're kind of wired to have a negative bias. When we look out into our experience in our world, we're gonna look for the things that could be harmful, that could be threatening. And I know when we think of threat, we often think of a physical threat, but it can often be an emotional one. And it sounds to me like we're kind of stuck in this, we have some symptoms of depression, and we also have a negative bias. And those two work in tandem to really spiral us out. That can pull us into a full-blown major depressive episode, that can mean that we actually are diagnosed with depression. Um, it could mean that we are struggling with what this author's calling a discontentment problem, right? I don't really like life. And no one would like life if all we can think about and all we can focus on are the negatives. Nobody would like anything if it's only the negatives, right? And so, not really. I know this might not really be distinguishing between the two, but I think the real problem here is we have a negative bias and we're letting it run and rule our world and therefore we don't really like life anymore. Now, if we wanted to get out of this, if we wanted to uh feel better about life, we should get into therapy. I would consider medication. It does sound like we have some depressive symptoms. Is it enough to get diagnosed? I don't know, I'd have to see you for a while. I'd have to catch, you know, figure out how long this has been going on. Do we think it it does tick the boxes of major depressive disorder or not. Sometimes I honestly don't even really care because you have the symptoms and those are bothersome. Then I would also challenge you to push back against that negative bias. Can we look for something positive? Can we bridge statement? Because I have a feeling not only do you have a negative bias for your world and your environment, but also for yourself. And so that's really what kind of spirals us out, causes us to feel a general Don't really like life i don't enjoy it i don't i'm just kind of about everything and that to me is is not a place any of us want to be like it's not enjoyable for you right and so th- that's those are really my thoughts and then to answer your question because i know i got off topic but depression and general disappointment or dissatisfaction depression has all the things that i mentioned right we're indecisive We have uh, difficulties with our sleep, sleep disturbance, appetite disturbance. We don't, um, we have a depressed mood for most days for at least two weeks. We don't enjoy the things we used to enjoy. And general disappointment or dissatisfaction is usually more contained, meaning it usually has a trigger, like something happened and we feel dissatisfied with our job or it's like very specific, right? It's contained in some way we don't like our job, we're unhappy in our relationship, like a romantic relationship, or um, let's say we lost a loved one and we're just feeling very dissatisfied with where we're at. You know, it's kind of more focused or more contained than overall depression. Depression affects more than just one piece of our life. I can't just be depressed at work. That's, That's honestly misusing a mental illness term or a diagnostic term. But depression, if we have it, affects all facets of our life. And so that's how I would distinguish the two, is that depression happens through, for, throughout our whole lives. Disappointment, dissatisfaction is usually more specific because my question, if my patient told me they were disappointed, I'd be like, what, what are you disappointed about? Can you explain? Or what are you dissatisfied with? What are you satisfied with? Right, then we'd have negatives and positives. I hope that that answers your question. I know it's really tricky, But I would argue that if you don't feel happy and you don't like being alive and you're just dissatisfied with life it sounds like depression and even if it wasn't depression even if it was disappointment or dissatisfaction that doesn't make it any less heavy and that doesn't make us any less needing of help so reach out it can get better okay let's move on to question number two this question says Katie, how can I reward myself? I had an eating disorder and I feel like I'm shopping too much. How can I reward myself without subconsciously supporting old behavior? This is a great question and one that I have tackled year after year, session after session with my patients who have either an eating disorder past or a spending problem, a lot of shopping problems. Um, Rewards can be different things. They don't have to be food. And unfortunately, I'd, I might have talked about this in the video. I'm going to do some more eating disorder videos, so stay tuned. But I talked about this years ago, probably now, um, about the fact that our culture often rewards with food in many, many ways. Not just like special events always revolve around food, but family connections revolve around food. When children get good grades, often parents will say, well, I'll take you out for ice cream, right? Or, oh, get that treat, treat yourself, right? We hear those words and treat is often associated, just like my dog might run in here thinking that I'm gonna give her a treat, but humans too, right? A treat is an extra, It's a it's a sweet treat. It's something that we really want, but we won't give ourselves for whatever reason, right? So how do we reward ourselves without involving shopping or food? Here are some good ideas. Find things that bring you joy, and give yourself time to do them. These are things like rewarding yourself by watching one of your favorite shows. I used to do that when I was writing my first book, Are You Okay? I would watch Grey's Anatomy as a reward. Or when I was in college, um, I would reward myself with like a face mask, or I got to sleep in more the next day, right? I know these might not feel immediately rewarding in the way that food and shopping does because it doesn't trigger that like reward system in our brain all the time or that dopamine hit. But it should be something that just feels good to us. Like rewarding myself by um, going out to, well, I guess that's kind of spending, but not really in the same way. Going out to dinner with a girlfriend because that connection's important to me. I've told you guys I'm having a hard time being here in Austin and not in Los Angeles because my friends are in LA, right? So if I got to spend time with those friends, oh, it's like a breath in that's a reward. So instead of thinking of reward as something that we eat or purchase, let's think of it as an experience. Like instead of, I don't know, um, doing laundry tonight because I should, what's something that I want to do? Do I want to watch this movie? Do I want to get in my cozy clothes? Do I want to take a bath? Do I want to put a face mask on? Do I want to finally dive into that book I've been dying to read? Do I want to catch up with a friend on the phone? All of those are ways we can reward ourselves that don't cost money or revolve around food. And I think we have to start thinking about reward differently. And like I said at the beginning, you won't get that immediate hit like you might when you bought an item or ate a food. But trust me when I tell you that the the good feeling associated with it lasts much, much longer. Okay, let's move on to question number three. Question number three says, I feel like I'm too broken for therapy. I have a fear of abandonment and I think it makes therapy really hard for me. It can't. I find it so hard to actually get help because I'm so afraid of losing my therapist. I don't want to open up and get attached because I know it's not forever. And the more I share, the more afraid I am that she's going to leave me. I can't stop thinking about my therapist when I'm not there. Like, is she okay? Is she going to quit or get sick or cancel or something? And then I feel crazy for thinking so much about therapy. Sometimes I just think I would be better off. I would be better not getting any help at all because having a therapist seems to make my anxiety worse. I tried telling my therapist a little bit about my fear of her leaving and she was really nice and honest. And basically she said that she's there to support me now, but eventually it will end. And there are things that are not in her control. And this therapy is not going to be forever. Even though I knew all that, hearing it made me feel worse and I completely broke down. Is it possible that therapy just isn't for me? Sorry for the long question. I hope this makes sense. It totally makes sense. And there's a comment on top of this, but let's just dive right in. Now there's two components I want to address. Number one, the feeling like we're too broken for therapy, I always believe that that thought process or that phrase comes from shame. Because if you recall, um, shame believes that something is inherently wrong with us. Like we are faulty in some way. It's not the same as guilt or embarrassment, right? Guilt is like, oh, I did something wrong. Embarrassment is like, oh my god, I wish I didn't do that. Shame is something's wrong with me. Like, I'm inherently broken. And so that belief that you're too broken for therapy, I always believe is a shame thought. And I think shame that is is often born out of trauma or born out of some kind of abuse in our past, like neglect or physical, sexual, emotional abuse of any kind, um, you know, because, or even bullying, because if we're told over and over again or, or made to believe over and over again that we're not okay and that something is wrong with us, we start to accept that as fact, Right. And so I just want to address that piece first, even though I know that's not really your question, but whenever I hear that, I always think, oh, shame. And the best way for us to navigate that is to start talking about it, start talking about feeling broken and assessing where that comes from. Be curious, not judgmental about its origins. When did I start thinking this? Have I thought it as long as I can remember? Has anybody in my life told me that I'm too much, that I'm too sensitive, that I'm too intense, that... um? I'm not good enough, that something's wrong with me. Like, why do you think like that? Ugh. Have people said that to you? When did that happen? How did that feel? Are we still telling ourselves those things? Just some food for thought, okay? Now let's dig into this fear of abandonment because I it's definitely present, but I also am very curious about attachment and Fear of abandonment can be part of borderline personality disorder. I don't want to forget to mention that. It doesn't mean that you have BPD. Like fear of abandonment isn't like, oh, automatically BPD. There are a lot of other symptoms that are a piece, a part of that. But I'm curious what your relationship is with your parents. And the reason I bring this up is because of something called reactive attachment disorder. Now, in your case, you're very clingy and you can't stop thinking about your therapist. You're almost obsessed with her. And so, reactive attachment is kind of the opposite. It's like when our parents want to reach out and support us, we're like, "Mm, we don't want it. We don't like it. We withdraw a lot. It's usually diagnosed before the age of five. But for many of us, you know, we weren't, if we were not well taken care of by our parents, hence the reactive attachment, then we might not have been diagnosed properly because we didn't get the help that we needed or the care that we needed. Um, We see it a lot, or I've seen it a lot in my. Um, work as a therapist with children who were passed around in foster care a lot or had multiple caregivers. This could be because their parents um, got divorced and they had to get passed back and forth, you know, a lot, and it was very dysregulating to them. Could be the foster care system, could be adoption, could be um, any number of things, If uh, maybe family difficulties, and maybe you were part, like your dad or mom was part of the armed forces, so you moved around a lot, and so you'd have Maybe your parents come and going in and out of service. That can happen too. So there's a lot of different reasons our parents can be inconsistent and we can have to change caregivers frequently. And all of that can lead to these kinds of pushing back and withdrawing when parents or caregivers try to reach out and support us and can feel very unsafe to trust anybody because of that inconsistency. So I just want to put that out there because that's something I don't think I've talked about before. Maybe in a video like years and years ago. And it doesn't sound like that's how it's presenting for you right now, but I'm curious about your childhood in that vein and if any of that rings true. But specifically for this, when it comes to your therapist and the obsession with her, there's clearly an attachment wound. And I'm going to, whenever there's an attachment wound, I'm going to jump to inner child work. And I know for a lot of us, it's really woo-woo. But I have a workshop on my website at katymorton.com. I'd encourage you to check it out if you can afford it. I think it's like 20 or 30 bucks. Um I forget because I'm not looking at it right now, but go and check it out. Um, also, let your therapist know. Say, hey, I asked a question to this weird therapist on the internet and she recommended inner child work because what's happening when we feel like we want to always be around someone and we're so scared they're going to leave us and we want to just keep them so close, we'd, we'd love to just like hold on to them constantly. When we have that urge when the, when that's like, it feels like a visceral response, like we can't not do that. We obsess about them. What that tells me is we're trying to take, especially in the therapy setting, but we're trying to take this one caregiver that we have, your therapist, who's consistent, who's supportive, who's loving and shows up for you in a real way. We're trying to put them into an older wound that's not theirs to fill. And I know it feels like, but it will because they're consistent. They'll do this for me. This is going to be great. It'll be fine. I'll feel better. Mm Mm-mm. Unfortunately, when we don't get those needs met when we're children, when we're little, when we need it at most, having someone in our adult life try to fill that void is just never going to be right. It will never quite fit right. And that person will never quite be available enough. And they can't show up for us in quite the right way all the time, right? We have no control over other people. All we can control is ourselves. And because of the inconsistency in other people, because hello, we're human, that can cause a re-traumatization. And so to prevent that from happening, we have to offer ourselves the love and support that we need. And I know you might be thinking, Katie, what the hell does that mean? Well, what that means is that when you feel this urged for her, like your fear that she's going to leave, oh my God, she's not going to be here for me forever. I want therapy to last forever, blah, blah, blah. Can you, as a random example, I talked about this actually on TikTok recently? Can you look into the mirror and say to yourself, you know what? Even if she leaves, I got you. I'm here for you. We're going to be okay. I'm never going to leave you. We got this. And I know that sounds kind of woo woo and a little weird, but we have to show up for ourselves. All we can count on is ourselves. And I know for some people, they're like, Katie, that's so fucking depressing. Maybe but it's the truth we can only count on ourselves and so not, sometimes we have to have like a come to jesus with ourselves where we offer the love the support the consistency that we needed do you show up for you are you there consistent, consistently then i know some of you might be thinking but Kate, of course I'm, i like can't separate from myself true but that's not what i'm talking about what i'm talking about is do you consistently love on yourself Do you work on yourself? Do you speak kindly to yourself? Do you offer yourself the support and the reassurance that you need? Probably not. And so that's what I'd want you to focus on. That's the work in therapy. And so let them know about this again and tell her that you think you need to do some inner child work because there's a reason you broke down. There's a reason that when she told you, you know, it's not going to last forever. And you're like, intellectually, I know that. But emotionally, you don't. And it was really, really painful to hear. And so that wound is still raw and open and we need to be able to heal it ourselves. We can't just keep trying to shove her into it. That's why it's so dysregulating because that's not the healthy way to heal from this. That's why your anxiety is going through the roof because we can't control that other person. But trust me when I tell you that when you start giving yourself the things that you need, that anxiety will lessen. Okay, There was a comment on this says, as an add on I too can relate to becoming attached to my therapist. I understand that this is fairly normal. And I would think somewhat necessary in order to feel comfortable and open up to your therapist. But my question is, what amount is normal and healthy What would constitute an unhealthy attachment to your therapist? I know I feel very close to my therapist. I share very difficult, scary, and sometimes intimate things with him. It has taken a while to build up that level of trust. And I still think about him often during the week and still after over a year am fearful of losing him. Like at any moment, he will tell me he's no longer available as my therapist, but he has reassured me many times that pending extreme circumstances that are out of his control, that this will not happen. However, I still get fearful thoughts occasionally that this is going to happen. Is it normal as well? I don't tell him anymore that I still have fears sometimes about this. Okay, again, what's going on here is there is some kind of wound from childhood, from our younger self that we're trying to fill with our therapist. But let me tease out what's healthy and not healthy. What's a normal attachment to our therapist? A normal attachment to our therapist is to see them as a sort of caregiver in our life. It's okay to think about them in between sessions, but we don't feel this like urge or impulse to like reach out or call them, or I wish I could see them, or I wonder what they're doing right now. I would argue that a healthy attachment to a therapist is like, oh, I can't wait to tell them this. This is gonna be great. Or, oh, I wonder what they they think about this. Like to think about the therapeutic piece. Oh, I can't wait to run this by them. Like I've had a lot of patients that are like, oh my God, I made a list because like so much stuff came up this week. I want to run by you. Like that's normal, it's when we feel like we want to put them into like a mom, a dad, a a familial or caretaker role in a big way. And we feel anxious when they aren't there. Like, I guess my question is always, if your therapist is on vacation, okay, you don't get to see them for, let's say, two weeks. Aside from maybe feeling worse or feeling like, oh, I have so much stuff I have to share with them, do we feel extra anxious or extra... Attach them. Do we want to know what they're doing? Do we feel overwhelmed by the prospect that they would not be able to see us for two weeks? You know, that's what I'm always curious about because there, therein lies the difference between healthy and possible. You know, I don't even want to call it unhealthy attachment, but more like attachment issues that are going to have to be worked on in therapy because we have, you know, we're struggling with them. The normal again would be that I, I think about them a little bit and like have things I want to run by them. You know, I'm really grateful for them. I see them as this. Person in my life, like a wise counsel, I can go to um, get some support, and they can help lead me. I look up to them. Unhealthy is I can't live without them. If they canceled sessions, I would completely fall apart. Um, I need to talk to them all the time. In between, I don't know how I would ever make decisions without running them by them. I don't want therapy to ever end, ever, ever, ever. I would crumble and fall apart. I wish they were my mom. I wish they were my sister. I wish they were my brother or my father. Any of that, that kind of teeters into the unhealthy space. Now, I will throw out a caveat here that, like, if we're in intense crisis, meaning we lost a loved one, surprisingly, we had a huge shift in our life. We lost a job. We had to move. We um, are in, I don't know, in crisis, suicidal thoughts, or, you know, had an attempt recently in crisis. If that's happening, then some of that attachment stuff can come up for a short period, but once the crisis subsides, so does that urge. Okay. I know it's not, there's, it's not cut and dried, but I hope that gives you an idea so you can kind of tease it out. Okay. Moving on to question number four. This question says, Katie, do you have any tips for people pleasers who are struggling to do things that are necessary, but will upset other people? like breaking up with someone that you're dating when you can tell it isn't working out or setting boundaries with a friend that you care about, but who is taking advantage of your willingness to help. I really appreciate anything you can share. Thanks for all that you do. Okay, I do have a couple of tips. Now, aside from the regular, like writing it out, practicing saying it, um, considering all the consequences and the fallout or what could possibly happen, like playing it out, Aside from that, because that's kind of like where I always start because I find with people pleasers, to be truthful, the thing about it is more about our anxiety of someone's upset. Like if someone's gonna get really angry, if someone's gonna experience an upset, we can't tolerate that. That causes us a lot of anxiety. And so our people pleasing is really about helping us feel better, okay? And so in order to kind of assuage our own anxieties, playing it out, writing it out, practicing, can help with that. So that's always kind of like my first go-to. However, something that's been helping me more lately, and let me know, and I'd love to hear if you have other thoughts, leave them in the comments, but something that's been helping me lately is to consider that me putting up boundaries, this is specific to boundaries, is actually the healthy thing for both people in the relationship. Because I do know this about myself, and I don't know if you're this way too, but as a recovering people pleaser, if I allow myself to continue people pleasing, what ends up happening is that I start to resent the relationship with such intensity that then I have to end it in a very dramatic, like, don't know you, you don't know me, fuck this shit, I gotta get out. I just leave, I like ghost. And it's dramatic and there's no going back. Once I've crossed that line, I can't go back. Honestly, even at my 40th birthday, one of my closest friends, Joanna, was like, she looked around the table at all the people there for dinner and she was like, can we just all say, Thank God that we're here. We made it. Because if Katie didn't like us, she would have cut us the fuck out. And I was like, am I that harsh? I don't think of myself as that harsh, but I am because I'll put myself in positions. It's honestly, it's my fault. I put myself in a position where I'm in relationships with people who are taking advantage. And then I get resentful and angry. And then I just ghost. Bye. So all that to say that placing a boundary or saying no is better for both. And it actually ensures the health, the continued health of the relationship. And I don't know if that helps you a little bit, but that helps me a little bit. I also have been trying to take better care of myself, and I've uh, come across a little, like a little saying or a quote that's um, a saying: "No to someone else is saying yes to yourself." And sometimes you have to say yes to yourself, and that's helped a little bit too. But actual usable tips, not just thoughts that I have, are the fact that staying in an unhealthy or unhappy relationship is never actually going to make that person feel good. Imagine you're them and you're in a romantic relationship with someone and they don't even actually like you but they're too afraid to break up with you. How would that make you feel? And sometimes I use my people pleasing like that to like get motivate me to do things. Or like what if you were the other person on that side where where a boundary should exist and you're starting to feel burnt out by that relationship, but you don't know you don't know about boundaries. You don't know how to set them right? Like sometimes it helps to put ourselves in the other position and recognize that us sticking with it because of our own discomfort is actually kind of selfish and it's actually hurting other people and us. I don't know if those things help, but that's kind of how I deal with it. Obviously that first piece of like playing it out and writing it out and thinking about it helps us process it through and better manage. But I also think that, you know, sometimes putting myself in the other person's position because people pleasing is such a innate part of who I am, Um, it helps me see it from that perspective. And then I'm like, oh, I don't want to do that, right? And then I can like use my people pleasing for good. I hope that that helps keep me posted, okay? Let's move on to question number five. This question says, hi, Katie, could you talk about the difference between healthy emotional processing versus rumination? Now, that's the question. There's a comment on it. Let's dive in. Now, when we're healthily, emotionally processing something, that means that we give ourselves time to feel it, as we experience it and not stuff it down. We acknowledge what the emotion is. We try to identify it. We try to experience it in our bodies. Where is it coming up? Is it in my neck? Is it in my stomach? Is it in my fist? Where is it? How am I feeling it? Where did this come from? I talk to people about it and I move past it. Rumination never ends. That's the big difference. They can start out kind of similar, but I would argue that when we're ruminating, we're not identifying where it is in our bodies. We're not actually doing any process-based work. We're not journaling about it in a helpful way, meaning asking ourselves tough questions, trying to figure out where it's coming from. Rumination is repeats. And so notice if while you're quote-unquote processing something, Are you just repeating the same statements over and over and over again? Like, I'll even be honest. Sometimes in my journaling, I'll notice, i would be like, I feel like I just keep writing the same fucking thing. That's rumination. I'm ruminating about something because I don't know what to do with it yet. And rumination in and of itself isn't bad, but it doesn't get us anywhere. Rumination is like a hamster wheel. Whereas healthy emotional processing is like, you know, taking an escalator. Like we're moving, we're going, we're grooving. And so we don't want to ruminate for very long. We don't want to get stuck all the time. That gets us nowhere, right? It makes us feel worse. And so pay attention. Am I able to identify the emotion? Could I tell you where it is in my body maybe? Am I questioning things and coming to new realizations about the situation? Or is it just Groundhog's Day? Am I just repeating the same thing over and over and over? And in there, you'll have your answer. Now, there's a comment that said, speaking of healthy processing, what does healthy processing look like in terms of trauma? When I think about my trauma, I normally am either dysregulated or void of all emotion. What is a healthy amount of emotion to feel when processing? Trauma is tricky because it can feel like a dam that we're going to bust and it was going to wash us out. We're going to drown in our emotions, right? I've heard that from a lot of you that it's like, we're too scared. And so the truth about this is that when we're processing trauma, we should feel it ramp up let's say we put our emotions on a scale of zero to 10, zero being like, I'm asleep. But if you have trauma, maybe not because I could be flash Zero being like, I'm just so calm. 10 being like dissociated, right? The goal of trauma work is to get us to move from zero to five or six, and then use our, our skills, our tools, our resources to calm our system back down. Meaning that like, if I start to feel it ramp up, I feel my nervous system get cued up. I'm talking about, I'm processing a really tough trauma. I start to feel uh, it's feeling in my throat. I like give a signal to my therapist. We, we stop and she says, can you feel the chair on your back? Can you feel your clothes on your body? What does your, your sweater feel like against your forearm? Can you clench and release your fists? Can you look around the room and tell me the number of things you see that are blue? We do some grounding techniques. We try to bring you back. Then I might, after we kind of come back in, like, Oh, then I might say, can you tell me where you felt that? Or can you tell me what you were experiencing a little bit and bring you back just a little bit so that we can kind of work through it? So it's kind of that going up, but coming back. We should not, ideally, it, it will happen, but ideally we should not dissociate when we're doing trauma work because as I've talked about over and over, when we're actually dissociated, we're not able to process, like our brain isn't present. So we're not gonna make the like the progress that we're going to want in our trauma work. And so we want to make sure that we're in our bodies. We want to make sure that our nervous system is regulated as best it can be. We might have to do a full body shake. That might mean we take we bring ice with us to therapy and we like hold ice in our mouth or in our hands or we drink really cold water or we splash some cold water on our face just to bring us back. And so the healthy amount of emotion to feel about processing is like any level, but we shouldn't be pushing ourselves to dissociation. Our therapist should be helping us bring it back down. Okay. Final question. Question number six says, hey, Katie, can you explain the fear of rejection versus fear of abandonment? I feel like a lot of people think it's the same. I have complex PTSD and I don't fear abandonment. I actually expect it, but my goodness, I won't ever ask a man out or make the first move. It scares me. Goodbye hurts a little, but go away. Hmm. I'm hyper-analyzing everything I said and did. My fear of rejection is so bad that I've broken up with someone that I've dated. Um, oh, so bad I've broken up with someone I dated. Okay, and there's a comment on this as well. Now, fear of rejection is the fear of being unaccepted. Now, fear of abandonment is fear of losing someone close to you. So I feel like the thing about rejection, and I know we could It is tricky because there probably is a lot of overlap in this, you know, like Venn diagram. We have fear of rejection and fear of abandonment. There's probably some overlap in there because you said, like, you um, you have fear of rejection so bad that you've broken up with someone you've dated, and I wonder because my hypothesis is, or the way I believe it is that fear of rejection means they don't know us and fear of abandonment means that they do. And so when someone abandons us, that means that we cared for them, they cared for us. We thought there was this mutual, caring, loving, whatever. And then they left. So I might argue that your boyfriend or the girlfriend or whoever you broke up with was more of an abandonment fear. We were afraid they were gonna leave us. And so we left them first, we cut and ran. Fear of rejection is someone's not going to accept me. That might prevent us from sharing more in relationships, that fear of rejection. Like, oh, if I tell them this piece of me, they won't like me. And so that's how I differentiate them. And again, I think there might be some of that overlap in our Venn diagram. We might, you know, they might both have part of that, like the, I think fear of abandonment could live partially in fear of rejection right like if i let them get to know or if they get to know me then they won't like me kind of thing um there's a little bit of some symptomology overlap but that's how i and my brain kind of tease them out and fear of rejection um i learned a couple of years ago recently at least in my brain can often be associated with adhd now i don't know if you have adhd you so said you have complex ptsd i would believe at the very least that that c is attached to the fear of abandonment because when we have complex PTSD, we can struggle with our sense of self. Um, Our relationships can be really difficult and very tumultuous. We can be, you know, kind of up and down and feel really impulsive. And so we're always worried people are going to leave us because we're having such a hard time. Um, Now, the fear of rejection is that they call it a rejection sensitive dysphoria, RSD, in ADHD a lot. Um, but I think a lot of us can fear that people aren't going to like us if they try to, if we try to reach out, they're not going to want to get to know us. Or if we tell them about us, tell them that thing about us, they're going to leave. And anyway, I know that that could be difficult to tease out. They might come from the same place for you, but in therapy, just be curious about it, not judgmental about where it's coming from, when it started, has it been your whole life? Do we think it is related to your complex PTSD? Why or why not? It's okay to just ask ourselves questions and see what we learn. Because again, I do think there is some overlap between the two. But fear of abandonment means that we cared for them. We knew them. We felt like they knew us well. And then they left. Fear of rejection is like, they're not going to accept who I am. And those are just a little bit different, you know. Um, But I might even argue that the feeling, the actual experience in our bodies might be the same. I don't know. I'd love to hear from you. Do you feel like it's the same to you or different? Let's be curious. Now the comment on this is, I guess this the question I posted is related to this. My trauma has meant that I am unable to perceive the emotion in others and am unable to believe that anyone could love me. Oh that sounds shame. Shame. The concept that someone could genuinely want to be with me just doesn't seem to fit into my head, and therefore I've never managed to maintain relationships. Yes, that could affect it. And the reason I I know this isn't there's no real question here, but you can see how. Trauma and shame hang out together, right? Shame is I'm something's inherently wrong with me. So that could feed into both of these things, fear of rejection and abandonment. If I tell you that about me, you're not going to like me, shame. I'm so broken. If you see that, you're going to leave. Or abandonment, I've let you in and you know me, and there's no way that you're going to stick around. The thought that anybody would ever want to be around me, I'm so icky, I'm so gross, I'm so broken, I'm so messed up, I'm so... I'm too much. People will always leave, right. And those false beliefs that come out of our trauma can hang with us and affect our lives going forward, which is why it's so important to let our therapists know that we're experiencing these things and to start being curious, not judgmental, about it. So we can learn where it's coming from, when it started, um, where it, you know, what what triggers it? What does help it? Is there anything that has helped it? Let's just be curious about this so that then we can kind of untangle it and better manage it i love those visuals on instagram i've been seeing lately where it's like it shows a bunch of colored dots and it says when i feel it and it shows it all messy like you know purples and yellows are all all swirled together in a ball and it says after i've thought about it and processed it and it shows them laid out like in a rainbow it's beautiful because that's kind of what it is when we have all these experiences like oh uh, I have so much fear of rejection, so much fear of abandonment. I feel so scared. I feel so overwhelmed. It starts to feel like that big messy ball of colors, right? I don't even know what to make of it. I don't know what I'm even feeling. It's all mixed up. We have that. And then we start teasing it out. We start being curious, not judgmental. Oh, I think I'm feeling afraid because of this. Okay, put that ball there, that one there. We start to slowly make sense of, or at least slow down the racing thoughts, help us see it more clearly and get some understanding about our emotional response and then it lies in that beautiful, nice line. Um, So take your time with it. We all feel that way. I feel like that's something that we all go through in life in general is feeling like we have so many thoughts and emotions, so many uh, things swirling in our heads. We don't really know how to make sense of it. And so we have to take our time. We have to uh, journal about it. We have to talk to people about it. We have to talk to our therapist about it. We have to be curious about it so that we can slowly put it back into order so it doesn't feel so chaotic. Okay? You can get there. I know you can. It takes a little extra work, but trust me, you're worth it. Thank you so much for listening and watching. Thank you for sending in your questions. Thank you for sharing this podcast. It really, really does help. Give us five stars over on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast that they'd let you rate it. I love you all. Have a wonderful week. Do your homework and I'll see you next time.